I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Chronicles of Riddick. They are a plague that now sweeps through the worlds of man. Leaving behind a trail of dead planets and towering icons. Monuments to their unholy crusade. When you wish upon a star All those poets on all those worlds who spoke of war as such an unsightly thing They never stood here Never fails to inspire, does it? Each time a world falls The Necromongers A dark army that will convert or kill every last human life Unless they can be stopped But sometimes the only way to stop evil is not with good. You must confront it with another kind of evil. Who the hell are you? I could really use a superhero right about now. I'm no hero. Ready? Where does he come from? Who are his people? These are the things I need to know. You remember your home world. Have you met any others? Others like yourself. It's not my fight. Consider it a test. Convert now or fall forever. Are you going to stop the monsters now? I am the monster. Get Riddick. Here they come! He's beginning to understand. Are you with me? Who is this man? He sees everything. You're not the one to bring me down. You're not afraid of the dark, are you? This show is going to stray into School of Everything Else territory because we are talking about all of the multimedia or rather transmedia releases connected with the Riddick character, including two animated shorts, two video games and two movies. But the centerpiece will be the 2004 epic dark fantasy sci-fi, which I have previously referred to as Space Conan, which is both called the Chronicles of Riddick and signalled the umbrella term for this collective of stories. So it would be like reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and then finding out that there's six other books in the Chronicles of Narnia and the order goes... The Butcher's Nephew, Assault of the Dark Dawn Treader, The Pitch, the Black and the Wardrobe, The Horse and His Dark Fury, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Silver Blind Side, and the last book, very simply entitled Narnia. Why these strange choices? Narnia business. But to put all of this into context, we have to go back to the beginning of Vin Diesel's career and trace it all the way through to now, because it's actually much more fascinating than any of these Riddick stories, including Pitch Black. If you look closely, then you can see him react and choose new projects, both wisely and unwisely, in real time. For better or for worse, and in a way that has made him one of the most popular movie stars on the planet, whilst still doing awful films. Okay, so, we go all the way back to the beginning. January 11th, 1991. 
Awakenings, where he played an orderly. I've never seen it. It's the one where Robert De Niro's been asleep for ages. He's just incredibly lazy. And then he wakes up and Robin Williams is there with a beard. And he's like, you got a beard. This is going to be a good Robin Williams movie. And Vin Diesel's there as the orderly. And he's like, okay, let's get you up, you lazy bastard. I think that's probably how it goes, right? <laughs> Um, we can but speculate. Jump a long way forward to July 24th, 1998 and Saving Private Ryan where he plays Compazzo. He's the guy who uh, tries to help a little French girl and gets shot by a fucking sniper. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, kind of a waste of Vin Diesel and had they known what Vin Diesel was going to turn into, he probably would have been someone else in the film. But uh, it's, a, it's, it's quite a good opening for him because he's definitely a human being in this. He grows into a great big granite tree as we go along, and not just because he's Groot, but he... Vin like, Diesel playing a tank. But yeah, I can believe that. But Compazzo is definitely a guy. Then, in August 6th, 1999, he played the Iron Giant, further cementing the idea that he is immense and made of metal. Yes. But it's a fantastic vocal performance. And, you know, frankly, Vin Diesel's vocal performances in animated and uh, Groot forms are some of his finest. Yes, true. February 2000, Pitch Black. Now, that gives you some idea as to how young, fresh, and hungry he was. I'd forgotten to put the Street Sharks thing in there. But the TV show came out in 1994, so it was between Awakenings and Saving Private Ryan. And, I mean, those three are usually placed together as a trifecta anyway. Absolutely. I mean, if you see one, you've got to see all three. Absolutely. And there are three seasons of Street Sharks that you have to watch before you'll understand what happens in Saving Private Ryan. Or Saving Private Iron, which they failed to do. Okay, but here's the thing. Like, we were there at ground zero for this. February 2000, Pitch Black. June 22nd, 2001, The Fast and the Furious. Now, a lot of dudes had seen him in Pitch Black the year before, but when The Fast and Furious came out, everyone was like, this guy's fucking awesome. And Dominic Toretto became a huge deal. And we've talked about the Fast and Furious series at length before. And the fact that it really appeals to the uh, Latinx community makes for a cultural footprint in the blockbuster market. Some much needed representation there. And this series has gone from popularity to popularity. And a huge amount of that is down to Vin Diesel. February 18th, 2000, he does Boiler Room, which is much more of a sort of acting like a human being scenario. I saw it a long, long time ago, wasn't massively impressed, but people rated him as an actor as a result of it. And I think that was one of those ones that sort of comes back and, and after everyone makes a fuss about him, they go, go back and see Boiler Room. Boiler Room's good, he's good in that. August 9th, 2002, less than a year later, he makes Triple X. This is the first movie where it's like, we've got Vin Diesel, he's so cool. Aiming at a specific crowd who wanna see Vin Diesel being naughty. And this predated YouTube whilst mainlining Jackass. What's up fam squad, it's your boy Triple X stealing cars like I shouldn't. These monkeys are following me because I just took this car. Obviously the car doesn't belong to me, it's not my style. It belongs to Dick. Dick Hotchkiss, a California state senator. You remember Dick, he's the guy that tried to ban rap music because he feels that the lyrics promote violence. It's music, Dick. He's also the guy that wants to pull every video game off every shelf in the country because he feels that the video games diminish the intelligence of our youth. Now, come on, Dick. It's the only education we got. 
Dick, you're a bad man. You know what we do to bad men? We punish them. Dick, you've just entered the Xander Zone. Okay, I'm coming in hot with the sound of bacon. May 14th, 2003, Enter the Matrix, the video game, followed by May 15th, 2003, The Matrix Reloaded. Those aren't necessarily massively important for Vin Diesel's career, but they are important for the trajectory of the Chronicles of Riddick. And June 3rd, 2003, The Animatrix. This was the first like major push into, wow, we could do all kinds of media now with DVD and video games. June 6th, 2003, Too Fast, Too Furious launches two years after the original Fast and the Furious, Sans Vin Diesel. He didn't want to be tied down to this series. So he didn't do film two and he didn't do film three and he only came back for film four. We'll talk about that in a bit. May 11th, 2004, Van Helsing, The London Assignment. That's another one of those straight-to-DVD animated tie-ins to the movie, which is also canon to the Van Helsing movie. June the 1st, 2004, Chronicles of Riddick Escape from Butcher Bay. That was the first video game. It came out on the Xbox only, the original Xbox, pre-360. Didn't come out on PS2. It was one, It was celebrated. It was uh, made by Starbreeze Studios. We'll be talking about this and the other one on a Patreon exclusive show, which is available to everyone at the $5 level right now. It was a rarity in that it was a movie tie-in game that was good. That just did didn't happen. GoldenEye 64 and a select handful of others, the exceptions that prove the rule. June 11th, 2004, The Chronicles of Riddick. That is the movie The Chronicles of Riddick, not the overarching universe The Chronicles of Riddick. Around about this same time, they re-released Pitch Black and they called it The Chronicles of Riddick colon Pitch Black as promotion for the Chronicles of Riddick that was coming out alongside the Chronicles of Riddick Escape from Butcher Bay and on June 15th, four days after the movie launched, the Chronicles of Riddick Dark Fury. That is a 30-minute animated short directed by Peter Chung. And we also talk about Dark Fury on the Patreon After School Club with Butcher Bay. And that film bridged the gap between Pitch Black and the Chronicles of Riddick. That's the second film and the fifth part of the Chronicles of Riddick. The Chronicles of Riddick. Bearing in mind, he said no to doing any more Fast and Furious films, for the time being at least. He also said no to doing, in on April 29th, 2005, Triple X2, State of the Union. They had to get Ice Cube instead and set him up with Samuel L. Jackson as essentially Nick Fury to continue the story without... I, it was kind of becoming a thing now. Vin Diesel starts a series and then fucks off and then you carry on with someone else. In the case of uh, Fast and Furious, it was Brian's story and then even Brian or Paul Walker didn't want to be in the third one so they started all all new story in Tokyo with Lucas Black and, and Bow Wow. So yeah, he didn't want to be in Fast and Furious. He didn't want to be in another Triple X film but he did want to be in The Pacifier in March 4th, 2005. <laughs> A month before Triple uh, X, The State of the Union, huh, he was in a movie where he's 
like a, 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 a an army sergeant or a drill or an SAS guy or or John Matrix from Commando, but he has to babysit kids. I believe he's some kind of maybe not Secret Service, but some kind of professional bodyguard. We started. He is assigned to children. We started watching it on Netflix a while back, and I just got bored. I was watching it incredulously with Willow, and Willow was like. Is this going anywhere? <laughs> I completely understand why this kind of movie exists. Kindergarten Cop made a huge amount of money. So when The Rock was in The Tooth Fairy, okay, so you're a big muscly guy, but you gotta show you got a soft side and you can do a movie with kids. Oh, that's cool. So like I, I'll i do a movie where I sort of relate to a kid. Oh, no, 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 no. It's kid power and the kids like, oh, they, they slime you and they, they drive you crazy. And you're like, okay, cool. Kindergarten Cop, as we've said before, I don't know why people say that's a, a fun movie to watch. It's wildly incoherent in terms of tone. It's way too dark and violent to be a kid's film, and it's way too twee and kiddie, and oh my god, get on with the kids, to be a cop film. It doesn't make any sense that this was so huge, and people weren't just walking out the cinema going, Ugh. Well, honey, I think we can agree that satisfied neither of us. July 8th, 2008, Batman Gotham Night. This was, I would estimate, the last of the big tie-in movie, straight-to-DVD movie things where they say this also happened, and it was to promote The Dark Knight, like the fucking Dark Knight needed any promotion. Kevin Conroy voiced the Batman. I believe most of the stories are supposed to be in canon with the Nolan trilogy. There's probably a whole bunch of things which actually decanonize it. Either way, I've been racking my brains to think of anything else which is a direct tie-in in the same vein. I suppose you could count Wolverine vs. Hulk and Wolverine vs. Thor 2 straight to Blu-ray shorts. Attempting to tie together X-Men Origins Wolverine coming out in 2009 with The Incredible Hulk coming out in 2008 and Kenneth Branagh's Thor on the table for 2011. However, since it was written by Christopher Yost and Craig Kyle, it actually serves much more as an accompaniment for the third X-Men animated series, Wolverine and the X-Men, which it shares a loose canon with, that loose canon being Wolverine. By 2008, it was like, well, how about you get the Blu-ray? And Blu-ray just never seemed to be really picked up, so I think that's probably why they, uh, like, Blu-rays obviously was became a big format, but never as big as DVD. They're still selling DVDs. August 29th, 2008 was a, <laughs> this was a year for Vin Diesel. He did Babylon AD, a fucking terrible sci-fi movie. <sighs> now, Rotten Tomatoes is not a, a metric for if a film is good or bad. The fact that it's at 7% does not speak well of Babylon AD. We saw it. The DVD is upstairs in the I'm never gonna watch this again folder, but just in case we hate movies, do it. <laughs> April 3rd, 2009, he returned for Fast and Furious, the fourth film, and that was a huge hit. That was the one that's kind of dour and, and miserable and like everyone's trying to do Nolan-style, like serious war on terror. Oh my God, just everything. Oh, it was not a great time. April 7th, 2009, the next spring after that, Assault on Dark Athena. That is the second Starbreeze video game, which we talk about on that Patreon show. No proximity to any other Riddick film. It's kind of weird. It is 
equidistant between the Chronicles of Riddick and Riddick. Assault on Dark Athena was on Xbox 360 and PS3, but it also brought the original Escape from Butcher Bay to Xbox 360, but also to PS3 so that Sony fans could actually play that for the first time. Were they trying to piggyback on the publicity of Fast and Furious coming out? Honestly, it feels like Vin's making a comeback, shall we do this, might have been on the cards. Because around about this time... Uh, he was known for Babylon AD and The Pacifier, and like, he hadn't had a hit in a long, long time. Vin was down, but not out. Uh, April 29th, 2011, two years later. Fast Five, a fucking fantastic Fast and Furious film. The first time that people were like, oh, this is really good. I get this now. I get why everyone raves about these movies. And that's because it was better than all four of the ones that came before. It is such an unusual series in that it took until film five for everybody to really embrace it. Yeah, it'd be like people going, wow, you only live twice. I finally get James Bond. Mm, yeah. <laughs> or Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Child, well, I'm in. Well, remember, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Friday the 13th, part five, The New Blood, the one with Roy. <laughs> now I get Jason. <laughs> well, you might. not in it. <laughs> exactly. At that point, you'd be like, huh, huh. <laughs> or... See how rare it is for a franchise to get to number five? And usually... Just training around. It's a, it's a very consistent downward trajectory at this point. Muppet Treasure Island, holy jinkies. <laughs> now I get why the Muppets are good. <laughs> we got cabin fever. Oh my God, that's the worst one. <laughs> People will be like, how dare you say that's the worst one? I like both Muppet Treasure Island and Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> July 24th, 2013. So this is two years after Fast Five. Four years after Assault on Dark Athena, nine years after The Chronicles of Riddick, uh, it's like a five-minute animated short. It's barely a, an animated short, even, that just explains how Riddick got from the throne at the end of Chronicles of Riddick to uh, the planet in Riddick. For all you people who are desperately wondering... <laughs> look, a story does not have to be end-to-end end for years for it to make sense. <laughs> and it does barely make sense. And Carl Urban's in it, so I mean, that's something. Okay. In the extended version of Riddick, you do also get some of this stuff. Mm. But in the theatrical version, they pared it down because they were like, could everyone just kind of just stop thinking about Chronicles of Riddick, please? We're ashamed. But we'll get to that point. September 4th, 2013, Riddick comes out. And that is, to date, the last time we've seen Riddick on any kind of screen. There hasn't even been a re-release of the re-release of Butcher Bay. And we will conclude this Riddick series next week on Patreon with a second exclusive episode just about that third movie, Riddick. To put it in context, they've been threatening, sorry, uh, teasing a film called Fury, or Furia, maybe, maybe it was going to be Fury, and then the Brad Pitt film came out, and then Furiosa, I don't know. It's all about Riddick's planet, and we'll talk about how they don't get to Furia throughout this entire Lord of the Rings level walk to Furia. And here's a five minute short on how Riddick went down to the grocery store to get some milk. And here's a five minute short about how Riddick went to the post office. Don't worry, Furia's coming. Anyway, August 14th, 2014, Guardians of the Galaxy and Vin Diesel stars as Groot and is 
absolutely the heart of that movie. It's fantastic. April 13th, 2015, Furious 7 comes out. It coincides with the tragic and untimely death of Paul Walker. Amazingly, the film is one of the best of the Fast and Furious series, and this is following a very strong five and six. And it's a fitting and touching farewell between friends in real life, and that absolutely comes through on the screen. And that did huge money, because everyone was going to see how are they going to pull this off? But also everyone was very interested in Fast and Furious at that point. October 2015, the same year, The Last Witch Hunter comes out. This is one of Vin Diesel's films based on a character he created for Dungeons and Dragons sessions. We'll probably cover that at some other point. It's kind of astonishing. Check, track down the We Hate Movies episode on it. That's the one which features Michael Caine, Sir Michael Caine, in Sitting Down the Movie. And he's fucking earned it. Especially, if, oh, I'm in one of those again. Fine. Well, if there's no Muppets coming, I'm going to sit down this whole time. You earned it, sir. This, Vin, is why podcasts exist. It doesn't <laughs> cost anything. It's just you and a microphone. You can say whatever the hell you like and people will listen or not, depending on fate. Oh shit, I rolled a 14. <laughs> January 26th, 2017, Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage. This was Vin attempting his second big comeback. Like, he'd already come back with Fast and Furious, and, and like, he was already flying high with Seven, but it was almost like he was, let, let, let's use that cachet and relaunch Triple X. And that was him coming back to the series he'd just abandoned. And honestly, it, it felt more like a showcase for these young Turks like Ruby Rose, who was great, and this young scamp named Donnie Yen, who was running around like he's 22 years old, <laughs> even though he's actually a 66-year-old man. <laughs> he's older than Vin Diesel, a lot older than Vin Diesel. Yeah, but he moves like he's not. Yeah, no. However, Dapika Padukone, who's uh, in that as kind of an antagonist slash protagonist, uh, is just out acts the shit of Vin Diesel on screen. And it's like, can this, this film be about her instead? She's really good. And I'm kind of sad that there was no more Triple X films after that because honestly, Vin Diesel is one of the, the less interesting things in that film. They also had Tony Jaa. There's also a point where Ice Cube comes to help and is clearly being shot on a different day. And it's like, he's standing at the top of a car park and they're like, thank you, Ice Cube. And he's looking down going, you're welcome. April 14th, 2017, F8 of the Furious. This is when he started going really downhill because this is the film that was seriously affected by him and The Rock having a real life tiff backstage. And we talked about that at length. August 2nd, 2019, Hobbs and Shaw comes out. That's where Dwayne goes, I'm gonna get my own Fast and Furious with Blackjack and Hookers, and he makes his own Fast and Furious. See, I quite like the, the, the titling of F8 of the Furious because on the software that I use for work, F8 is delete order. Uh, so we can yeah. just get rid of that one. It does delete the order, especially as it now goes one, two, four, five, six, three, seven, eight. Then nine is Hobbs and Shaw, then 10 is Fast and Furious 9, and the upcoming Fast and Furious 10 is 11. March 13th, 2020, Bloodshot comes out. Do you remember Bloodshot? Did I see Bloodshot? Nobody saw Bloodshot. Was I aware of Bloodshot? Do you know about the comic character Bloodshot? Uh, is he related to Deadshot? Oh, that's DC. Okay. What know you of Valiant Comics? Are they an offshoot of Image? 
No. Uh, but they're a similar uh, 90s era kind of, we're going to get our own comics with Blackjack, well, Blackjack and Hookers. Blackjack and Hookers, oh dear. And Bloodshot's a guy with guns. Okay. There's also so the- he is related to Deadshot then. <laughs> They've also got Exo Man of War, Turok, the dinosaur hunting Native American who ended up a video game star. Everybody looks miserable. And all the others, yeah, they do. He's so, got the Japanese flag on his chest. I suppose so. It's a it's a big red circle, and he points guns and a he lot. Carries a samurai sword, and there was a thing on there that they were clearly trying to pull off Lone Wolf and Cub. It was him with a baby. Was there a baby? Yeah. Does that be cool? That'd be something. Is that a baby? Is that a baby? Oh, no, no. no. Oh, I no, no. tell a lie. I thought he's it was just, a baby carrier. He's just got he's lots just of grenades. Very weird armour. <laughs> he's got a baby Bjorn full of grenades. <laughs> I mean, that's the way to do it. I mean, that would be fine if Vin Diesel had a baby Bjorn full of grenades and he's like, I've got 15 grenades. Who wants one? <laughs> but yeah, the Bloodshot movie the came out. Pacifier 2. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. The The... Bloodshot movie came out. It cost forty-five million. It made thirty-seven million. Thirty-seven. Yikes! But I mean, mitigating circumstances. March twenty twenty. Yeah. This was exactly when COVID hit and when various countries started going into lockdown. Yes. You didn't go to the cinema at that point unless you really wanted to see something. Like Birds of Prey was at the tail end of this, for example. Well, you didn't go to the cinema because the cinema was shut. Yeah, and a lot of people just couldn't see it. Yeah. I, I recall Bloodshot being advertised. And I was like, nah, I don't want to see that because it looked like a terrible Vin Diesel action film. September 25th, 2020, Feel Like I Do drops. That's the Vin Diesel sing-song ah. thing where he does an album and he says he's blessed. Vin, again... <laughs> May I refer you to the concept of the podcast? <laughs> I understand many of you are in lockdown right now. <laughs> Thank no you all for listening it. to my podcast. There's no shame Now in I'm going to sing fine. for you. It's fine. And June 25th, 2021, F9 The Fast Saga comes out. That's the movie where he goes, me and that other wrestle boy had a fucking tiff, so I'll get a different wrestle boy to be my wrestle boy, and he's my brother. And his name is John Cena! He looks exactly like my biological brother, don't you all agree? Yes, we do, Vin. And it became one of the highest grossing films of last year. At what point in the fast movies are they simply going to resort to the title F you give me money? Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So yeah, that brings us up to date as to where Vin Diesel is now. And if Fast 9 can make that much money during a pandemic, then the Fast series will be fine and Vin Diesel will be financially fine for the rest of his life because that will continue to be the Dominic Toretto saga. One, two, three. But step back in time with us right now to the far off year of 2004 where Vin unleashed the Chronicles of Riddick. This is your one chance. Take the Lord Marshal's offer and bow. I bow to no man. He's not a man. He's the holy half-dead who has seen the Underverse. Look, I'm not with everyone here, but I will take a piece of him. A piece you will have. Jürgen, one of my best. If you say so. What do you think of this blade? I think it's a half-gram heavy on the back end. In our faith, you keep what you kill. Are you familiar to me? Have we met on some distant field? You'd think I'd remember. You'd think I would too. The year was 2004. The Lord of the Rings had culminated six months ago. The summer saw the third Harry Potter movie. While the highest grossing film of that year, Shrek 2, made fun of all that fantasy shit for babies with its farting ogre and pop culture references. Followed up on by DreamWorks' wildly popular burning underwater trash fire Shark Tale. Roland Emmerich was making climate change a fun, effects-packed weekend disaster adventure that we could all survive by going to live in Mexico during a sudden ice age occurring the day after tomorrow. Troy was reminding us of Hollywood's age-old fixation on both swords and sandals, and Ben Stiller's awkward comedy career continued apace with Meet the Fockers. And atop it all, Mel Gibson was whipping the living shit out of Jesus Christ for fun and a great deal of profit in his anti-Semitic torture porn smash, The Passion, the most successful R-rated movie ever made about hurting and killing a single dude. There was also, of course, Spider-Man 2 and The Incredibles, but remember, Marvel superhero movies and Disney ruined cinema. We haven't had a Shrek movie or a Fokker movie for years, and now people seem to regard the stupid world smashing of Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin, like Moonfall or Geostorm, as a ridiculous joke. But amidst all this, one figure emerged from the darkness of 2004, an imposing, gravelly-voiced, dark hero who would stand against dark, diabolical, demonic forces from beyond the darkest realms of known space, and his name was Hellboy. Although, hardly anyone saw Guillermo del Toro's amazing gothic sci-fi because they were all too busy watching Zack Snyder's anti-Islamic bastardization of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. But another dark figure emerged from the dark of 2004, darkly darking his furious darkness, Vin Diesel, who four years earlier had nailed the Riddick performance in a one-off creature feature called Pitch Black, had then a year later debuted as Dominic Toretto. And then a year after that as Agent Triple X, a base-jumping fur-coat wearer whom the spy people send in when James Bond won't cut it. Vin was huge. Potentially. Sort of. He wasn't quite a guaranteed megastar, and he was searching for his breakout success. 
eschewing returning to either the Spy or the Car series at the time in favour of the character that he preferred because he's a big doofy Dungeons and Dragons nerd who loves lore and 90s comic book versions of grim, dark and fleeting man pain. Somehow various meetings had taken place that convinced Universal that the Riddick character could support an entire transmedia franchise. Hey, Tui, come over here. We need a new transmedia multi-platform, dark and violent, but still PG-13, so we can get all the kids while they're slashing throats, God forbid. The Matrix sequels had disappointed many, but brought in crazy amounts of money doing this in 2003. Again, those were two massively high-earning R-rated blockbusters. So, making it a PG-13, you'd make even more money. But it meant the profit was feasible, and there was no actual requirement to make a great film. You know, why pressure ourselves? This second movie is called The Chronicles of Riddick, and it became the focus point of this series of interconnected stories, now, occurring in movies, video games, and animated shorts, with the overarching name of The Chronicles of Riddick. This means that The Chronicles of Riddick is in fact the fifth installment of The Chronicles of Riddick. Unlike the small-scale $23 million desperate scrabble for survival on an alien planet that was pitch black, this was a $120 million dark cinematic epic. It went from R-rated to PG-13, and ironically, Riddick went from directly killing nobody to killing loads of people in a variety of cool ways. Pitch Black delivered a wayward, freed prisoner, an initially frightening, ultimately big-talking, selfish human being who begins to ponder his place among regular people and is exposed as little more than a tough but frightened boy. This film recontextualizes those conclusions, propelling him far back to a cartoon version of Cool, a 13-year-old boy's definition of badass who always comes out on top, and when he doesn't, it just makes him brood all the harder. His chief interest is talking about himself and how scary and cool he is. He exists in a galaxy of many worlds and strange technology, combining planet-hopping sci-fi with edgy theatrical sorcery, and I can't fail to applaud the ambition here to deliver something like Greek mythology in space with very much a Conan the Barbarian flavor. And I would love to see this done well with a character like Lobo or a brand new story. You could have done this with a brand new character. And they didn't. But The Chronicles of Riddick does not execute its aims well at all. It's not without its fans. There'll be people going, Hey, I like The Chronicles of Riddick. That's fine. But to us, it does not execute its aims well at all. They fall disastrously short of the mark for a number of reasons that we will now go into. First off, and this is just a bunch of bullet points, we've got the revised Riddick character and his tiny world. Now, I would contend that because they make it all about going to prison and breaking out of prison, being hunted by mercs, and then back-talking with mercs and killing mercs, and evil undead armies and victims, and that's the only dichotomy out there, in prison or escaped, being c captured by mercs or killing mercs, and predators or prey, it makes the worlds actually seem quite small and not epic and actually makes this whole thing seem like it's taking place in a pub car park. Well, it, one of my big issues with it is it takes all of the threads of potential that Pitch Black ended on and it snips them off and ties them up and says, no, we want him to go in this particular direction. I am The most actually, lucrative saleable direction. I don't think this is going to work, but I am 
when we watch Riddick, mm. I am going to watch that in a mind of, is it possible that this could segue into the back of Pitch Black? And that I could mentally reorder them as actually this is a man who became a leader and then a war criminal and then reduced himself down to this guy who was running away from mercenaries because they wanted to put him in prison again. And then he does the stuff that happens in Pitch Black. And then he saves Jack and Imam again and it all starts over. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I don't necessarily think it's going to work. Symbolically speaking, it could. But yeah. Um, however, you are absolutely I admire wrong. optimism. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Hey, i got to do something with this shit. Um, but I, I completely agree with I you. I can make a pen you. or a brooch. <laughs> and Riddick's getting larger. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you are absolutely bang on about the Conan thing. That's the first thing I wrote down, was we go from space horror to space fantasy and Conan-style fantasy mm. at that. Uh, which is, 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 that's known as low fantasy. Lord of the Rings, elves, dwarves, serious yet child accessible, high fantasy. Conan the Barbarian, quote unquote, low fantasy. This is mainly blood and tits. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily call it low fantasy. Yeah, myself. as well. This is low I, fantasy. I don't like that the seems to come from the same place as elevated horror. It's a weird kind of hierarchy. Well, yeah, and especially since the way that it's phrased, it seems to come down to how much blood is in this thing, which mm. doesn't really make but a lot of difference. that's the thing. Dragon Age was soaked in blood, and they wanted to define themselves as grey fantasy, which, I mean, Game of Thrones pretty much made its bread and butter doing precisely that, and had been in book form for quite a while before Dragon Age came out. Here's how it works. Does it feel historical but not quite real? Then it's fantasy. Mm -hmm. Does it feel futuristic but not quite real? Then, then it's, it's sci-fi. Sci I've said this before about horror. Pigeonholing stories into straightforward genres is not only reductive, but it's playing into the hands of marketers. Genre was harnessed by Hollywood to allow producers and cinema goers to make very straightforward financial decisions. What you're looking at is Star Wars. True. And, and they insist on calling that a space opera because they don't want to nail that to either. And mass. weirdly, this sits at an, at an odd place between kind of, it's a bit Star Wars-y. Mm. If Star Wars ever let the Empire drop and allowed a big, like, like the Necromongers could come out of a dark comic book version of Star Wars. It could. And I'm sure there have been some similar race, especially in the extended universe. In terms of the way that, that Tui seems to want to do the storytelling... Whenever you say Tui, I think of Audrey too. I know. Um... <laughs> Feed me money! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Feed me diesel! Feed me now! <laughs> um, Feed me tuna fish. But the, the story itself is extremely Conan. It's the little lost best boy from uh, the, the planet yeah, from the, that's been over. His village got burned down. Exactly. Only they escalated. The fact so it's a planet. His got village burned is down. a planet is irrelevant. It's a village, and they've all been killed, and he's the only one, and he has to overthrow the bad guys who destroyed his village by becoming one of the bad guys. Riddick, what is true power? To crush your enemies, <laughs> see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations of the sisters. Well, yes, indeed. <laughs> its visual influences, which we will get into mm. later. We'll get into are, it now. Well, they are mostly things that I would like to stab in the eye. Ooh. I was watching this, and the like. The first things that popped into my mind before we even get to the dick ships. Oh, we're gonna talk about ships. Man of Steel. The first thing that I thought of when the camera is panning over the Necromunger army and you see Confiore with that ridiculous multi-faced 
helmet it looks was, so uncomfortable. It looks like the Immortals. Mm. It looks like the Immortals, and it's got the It's just called Immortals. Of, you mean oh, the Zack Snyder follow-up to 300 about Theseus? Yes. With Henry Cavill. Exactly, yes. That's what it looks like visually. They even have a scene which is just the Oracle from 300. It's not even trying to be anything different. And as a result, it feels like... Remember a lot of the stuff that we said about Pitch Black was the influences that it draws on are some proper classic stuff. The effects people and the uh, scriptwriters actually draw on those influences quite well. Here, they're copying stuff that's shit. Yeah. And I find that frustrating. See, now I'm thinking what would have happened if they'd get, gotten Tarsum Singh, who had just come off of the cell, to <gasps> yeah. direct this. Okay, like, that, at least it would then have been, been visually, visually astonishing. Yeah, absolutely. But the other thing that, that struck me, and this isn't necessarily a critique of, of the thing that they're copying from, was there was a point where I was just like, Borg, 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 Goodness me, it was Borgy. It was very Borgy. It was very the Bjorn Borg. Resistance is futile, even though it hasn't been in the past. Exactly. It definitely is now. Yeah, um, and in particular, there's a, there's a moment a little bit further down the line where the Necromongers are, are at this new planet that they plan to take over, mm -hmm. and they have. Uh, is this Helion Prime? Uh, yes, I think so. So it's it's where Colm Fiore does his big speech. It's about half an hour in, because you pointed out that it's half an hour before we actually get to hear anything from Colm Fiore. The Lord Marshal. <laughs> the Lord his... High Marshal, and we don't see him for 30 minutes. He actually has a name. It's like Zando or Zenu or something. It sounds very Scientology. Um, mm, yes, indeedy. But the, uh, the the scene where he kind of comes out and does his big speech about we've, we've defeated you in the, the military field... You defeated them in the military field, and yet you've convinced them all to come to this hallway and listen to what you have to Speaking say. Speaking of Scientology, they actually do say something along the lines of, we beat your armies in seven minutes. That's practically a no, line says, from Battlefield Earth. He says they beat them in a day. but yeah, It's a bit longer than Battlefield Earth. It takes them a bit longer than Battlefield Although Earth. Although Battlefield Earth takes longer than that to watch. <laughs> doesn't it feels like it and he so he does this big speech and then everybody's like no we will resist you we will not tolerate like like <clears throat> you taking over us and then he says aha but here's what will happen i will grab your soul and your body will die and they all go Ooh, we all yeah, swear all right, fealty all, to what the fuck did you think he was going to do when you refused before go all right then i'll leave there he it was going to kill you anyway surely you knew that there's a spiritual element to this. I think what they're blushingly groping for here mm. is they keep going, we need to tell the Fire Nation that we believe in our beliefs as much as they believe in theirs. Yeah. It's something about our beliefs are what we believe in and we don't care that you've been <sighs> you've been to Underverse and seen the Underverse, whatever the fuck that is. We never find out. It doesn't matter. I guess he kind of prefer it being mysterious. But either way, it, it gives the Necromongers nothing interesting because they were like, oh, yeah. we've got awesome stuff. Our mum won't let us bring it into school, but we've got so much <laughs> awesome stuff. We've got so much stuff. But there's... Wait, wait, wait. Oh, sorry. But they say, we have our spiritual beliefs. You can't take them away from us. And he goes, well, I'm just going to yoink your soul right out of your body. And everyone looks at that and goes, whoa, their gods must be real. Ours must be shit. We bow down and just drop <laughs> our beliefs immediately. That's not how faith works. It's A, no, it's not. B, in that case, we needed a bit more conversation back and forth to make it clear that that was what was going on. But C, they are, there seem to be two historical, I mean, there's probably more than this, but two particular historical empire-building movements that it really struck me that they seem to be drawing on, whether the they know it or not. No, no. <laughs> 
The Byzantians? No. Whether they know it or not, they are pulling on the Roman Empire. Surely not the Hittites. No, not the Hittites, my darling. Um, the Roman Empire and the Nazis, one of which was successful, one of which was very definitely Both of not. which had bonus for eagles. However, the implication then becomes the Roman Empire brought nothing to the people they conquered except Christianity and everybody went, oh, your gods are really awesome, let's all sit down. Because after all, what have the Romans ever done for us? Exactly. Um, uh, I won't go into all the things they have, otherwise this podcast will be far longer than it needs to. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is the Nazis, what the Nazis were doing was not about faith. The, the fact that they were exterminating the Jewish people was, the, the religion side of it was a handy hook to stick that on. But that's not really what they were trying to achieve. And to, to make this... There was a lot about purification, which... Since there's a character in this called the Purifier, exactly, and that means that they, they, the, the structure of them and the visuals, a, apart from the fact that everything is fucking grey, which it wasn't. I've put the, Roman the entire aesthetic in this film is slate grey and sweaty flesh. Yeah, that's all we get. Those are the two colours. But it's like the visuals of the Roman Empire with the here's what we think the ideology of the Nazis was, and it just feels like guys. Google this shit before you write these scripts. I don't. I think there may have been Google in 2004 historically, but it wasn't a thing that people did. All right, encounter this Jeeves shit. Do this something shit. to not make what you're doing feel battered and meaningless and empty and crumble at the first question. Exactly. There's there's no narrative solidity to this that makes it feel like, yes, this is something that I could see actually accomplishing what they accomplish. They are ultimately, the, the faith side of things is fucking irrelevant. They are a military force that does nothing and a weird cult. but consume. They, they settle on these planets, they absorb... They spread to another they area. they don't kill, and they just... Every, and all they seem to be about is making their own ranks larger. That is the Borg. That is all the Borg seem to do. Yeah. There's no actual living that goes on once yeah. they've done the conquering. They don't go, right, let's go on... Uh... <laughs> Fucking Necromunga vacation. Who's going to go to Helion Prime with... Oh, no, we already took that planet. Yeah. Like, cause, uh, uh, do, do they like this aesthetic? Because it's really boring. Yeah, it's just the same thing over and over again. At this point, they're intelligent xenomorphs. And even the xenomorphs seem to have something going on a little bit more than these guys. Mm. So, <clears throat> these... At least we got to see the queen that they were also dedicated to. <laughs> Another of the things this oddly resembles, and especially combining science and magic in this same strange way, is Thor. And that's not without hmm. reasoning insofar... Thor has more colour, but yes. Of course Thor has more colour. <laughs> but the design was Patrick Totopoulos. And Patrick Totopoulos is absolutely key to what this film looks like. We're going to talk about the dick ships now. We are going to talk about the dick ships. All the ships look like dicks. Yes, they do. Uh, Totopoulos uh, has actually worked on so many films of note that have been massively influential. He's actually had a genuine influence on what Hollywood blockbusters look like for well over 30 years now. Mm. Stargate. Yes. Independence Day. Mm-hmm. The 1997 Spawn movie. Okay, no one saw that, but either way, it's very top. Hey, it influenced an awful lot of scriptwriters. Godzilla. So basically, he made Roland Emmerich a design aesthetic in the 90s mm. that would make him a megastar director during his golden age. 
Dark City, which everyone keeps telling us is great, and every time we see it, we're like, oh, yeah. maybe it is quite, it's quite good. Right. And then it ends up like, oh, no, I remember why I don't like this yeah. film. <laughs> but it was... Uh, not so much that people would recognise it now, but at the time it was kind of hand in glove mm. with the Matrix in terms of uh, visual influence. And inarguably stylish. Yes, indeed. Battlefield Earth! And there we have it, folks. Pitch Black, he actually uh, uh, helped, as we, we talked about last week, uh, he, he was instrumental uh, there. Underworld. Ugh. Uh. <laughs> But yes, you are right. Underworld, sadly, Has was the same... very influential in terms of let's make everything look like this. Well, yeah, it was dark and sort of steel blue, but on kind of a gothic xenomorphy look. And everyone was wearing leather suits and carrying machine guns. It was that kind of 2000s vapid mid-level blockbuster yeah. thing. And especially like... Post-Matrix, everyone wanted Patrick Totopoulos to make their films look Matrix-y. Yes. And I would say that that segued into, this is what we're going to make the X-Men look like. Yeah. And Marvel's aesthetic was a deliberate refutation of that. Bingo. Yeah. They were uh, wildly influenced by that first Iron Man mm. had a huge knock-on effect on like stuff that comes out now. You mean no. everything doesn't have to have black PVC in it? Yes. There's pl <laughs> there's plenty of Marvel stuff which definitely deviates from the Iron Man look, mm. yeah. but there it's the the Rosetta Stone of where everything came from. And Mar like Iron Man looked clean and technologically enhanced and interesting and intricate. But why don't you throw a little hot rod red in there? Yeah. Um, and and as humorous and obviously like I, I'm by no means denying that a load of people chased Marvel. When I say Marvel ruined everything, it's a constant, like, echoing what I hear all the time from people saying Marvel ruined everything in as though prior to Iron Man, everything was fucking aces. And just look at the state of blockbusters prior to Iron Man. Well, not just blockbusters, just mid-range movies like Underworld. They still make that shit now, but nobody marks it. And for a good reason. It was shit then, it's shit now. Just this past month or so, we've had a fairly fascinating clash of the beginnings of two aesthetically opposing cinematic universes. In Black Adam, which we released an hour-long Patreon-exclusive show on, many times it appeared to be riffing on Man of Steel, even down to that shot of Black Adam floating in the sea. But they're also chasing Marvel, really trying to get their own cinematic universe, again. So that bit where he's flying and the two jets fly up next to him on either side is straight out of Iron Man. So that they can illustrate that while Iron Man accidentally busts one of the planes and then saves the guy, Black Adam destroys it on purpose because he is not a hero. I mean, you know, he, he won't hurt innocent people, but he is not a hero. I mean, he only fights terrible people, but he is not a hero. So on that note, Riddick, and back to production designer Patrick Totopoulos. Totopoulos also worked on iRobot, that was a massive film in 2004. Will Smith had some, one of his worst roles, I Am Legend. Will Smith actually being quite scarily good and nobody rates that film because they haven't seen the, uh, uh, the original ending before they changed it. Seeing the original ending of I Am Legend is not guaranteed to turn you around on the film, but at least you'll have seen it before the producers could listen to the test audience and completely bugger the story. It's, it's not a magnificent film, but it's definitely been influential on my work. Um, but then he would go on, and this is the important thing, folks, 
Patriotopoulos was the set designer for Man of Steel, and he has subsequently given Zack Snyder his look. If you look at Krypton, after immediately watching uh, The Chronicles of Riddick, you'd be like, oh. Oh, the Necromongers have been here. The Necromongers have been here, <laughs> or maybe Krypton was Where the home of the Necromongers. From? Oh my God! They have a similar kind of, why should we have TV screens when we can have holographic oil that turns into sand, that turns into imagery and looks horrible? Why should we have looking after each other when we could have being strong and dominant? Yeah. Oh. Patrick Totopoulos also worked on Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice and Justice League. And he's most recently worked on Transformers Rise of the Beasts. And significantly, he did not do the work on Bumblebee. Like, if you think about Bumblebee, it, it has more of an Iron Man aesthetic and a lot less of a You can uh, see the yellow aesthetic. for a yeah. start. So while uh, Rise of the Beasts actually has a great production team, mm -hmm. and I am excited for it... I'm a little cautious, a little cautious of going back to, a, to towards the grimdark. It's weird because I actually really appreciate Patrick Totopoulos, not least for his work on Pitch Black, but he's done so many films that I've ended up really not liking. And it feels like The Chronicles of Riddick was a major part of that mm. in terms of people pointing and going, that, I want that. Yeah. Well, that's and it's like, well, it didn't make any it's, money. Why do you want that? He may be incredibly skilled and gifted at, at developing the aesthetic that he works with. Mm. But everybody who hires him does so because they go, I want my film to look like everything else. Yeah. Or more specifically, we want teenage boys to like this movie. What about every other demographic? Fuck them. The characterization in The Chronicles of Riddick is very light and very shallow. And that's one of the most annoying things about it. It takes, it's two and a quarter hours, the director's cut that we watched today. It goes on forever. And, and I'm like, I'm really waiting to be fed here. Mm. But it's just this conveyor belt of style that doesn't even look all that good. It's, it's strange. A lot of the ships do also look like dicks, which must have pricked at uh, the attention of uh, Zack Snyder because he um, most definitely inc incorporated small shuttle spaceships into uh, Man of Steel that looked like cock and balls. Mm -hmm. Erupting into the sky. Yeah, just going up into this giant egg prison. It's worth noting, as, aside from the Lord Marshal, played by Colm Fjord, who I'm not going to talk about that much because there's nothing remarkable about him. And I'm sure he's a lovely old fellow in real life. And this was a long time ago and he looked like an old man then. You may remember him as Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones, well cast as the guy who's got nothing going on. He's your big bad villain in this and he's never threatening at any point. He's a rubbish foil for, uh, for Riddick. That's one of the issues. It actually would have been way better to have Carl Urban mm -hmm. play this furious uh, leader who is worried that the Necromongers are going to rise up and try to stab him in the back all the time mm -hmm. and be constantly talking with his wife, who's like, we've got to do this, we've got to do this. Carl Urban plays an earlier version of that exact same character. His name is Varko. He has a mullet to beat the band. Really it's like a mullet which turns into sort of natty white dreadlocks. boy dreadlocks at the back. It's the greasiest, most disgusting haircut and no hair on the sides. It's, it's absurd. It's like Billy Ray Cyrus meets Butthead. It's absurd. And his wife is, play is Dame Varco, played by Thandiway Newton. And she's one of the few females in this film who's not objectified the whole time she's on screen. Mm. She's got a bit of meat to her role. To her credit, also Queen Dench is in this. Oh, yes. And she is also not sexualized and objectified. They no. waited for cats for that. She looks really good, though. I have to say, yeah, when yeah. she came out, I was like, 
when was this? Because she looks so young. Yeah, she's got sort of flowing white hair and a lovely white robe, and she's an elemental, and she's very enigmatic. And they hadn't written what she was about, and, Not really. and I'm fine with that. I but, prefer mysteries without answers. Indeed, and also, as I said at the time, Dench is allowed to do whatever she wants, whenever she mm. wants, for whatever she gets paid. I got no problem. With Including that. slumming it in this piece of shit. Yes. But uh, Thandiwe Newton's Dame Varco is is trying to get her dumb hammer of a husband to take the throne himself. Then they can have all the pie, all the necro pie. Mm. And I'm like, I'm not sure. Like, you're a highly ranked uh, necromonger and you don't have any ideas about what to do differently with the necromongers. So why would you snatch power and risk everything at this point? Yeah. What, what's, what have you got to gain? A bigger hat. <laughs> And would it appear worth, to be it. It is worth noting, and I have to say, by the way, the, the conflict... I happens, wake up so jealous of that big hat. The confrontation that happens at the very end, which we will talk about shortly. Uh, probably not much, though. Um, I, because the the thing that happens that makes uh, Tantewe Newton go, oh, No! No, she goes, No! She is like Arnold Vosloo. Because no! Because that happens kind of off screen, I briefly thought something completely different had happened. Did you think uh, Varko had been killed? I th- yeah. No, yeah. that's not what happened. But no, that's not what happened at all. But... Well, no, it's it's the Darksaber rules. If you kill the Lord Marshal, you get his you get job. Ex- you keep what you kill, Riddick! You keep what you kill! Everyone keeps saying that in this. how it works. Everyone keeps saying you keep what you kill. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not even sure what that means. Also, like, how... If you want someone's shoes, you kill them and take their shoes. How and the do power you have the stability to form an empire of this size and reach... When the rule is the you rule keep is what you kill. fucking conquers. Yeah. And it's like you've got this big guy lunking around the place with giant axes, and it's like, how, like, he, he, why is he not being stabbed in the back so people can have his axes? Or did he prove he was the best axe boy by fighting all the other necromongers? And his position is, oh no, wait, he's just there to be a big guy that Riddick kills to impress everyone. Indeed. Um, also, then, why is there any stabbing in the back at all? Surely you would want your killing to be very visual in front of everybody so that they know you are the best killing boy. Side note, stabbing in the back does actually kind of come into this. The, the, the big giant that I mentioned has got a knife in his back. And Riddick's like, ooh, that's an opportunity. <laughs> and he decides he's going to like take this guy on without a knife, mm. snatch the knife, at the, the knife out of his back, and then stab him with it. And it's like, dude... If he's been stabbed in the back, you could probably stab him in the front and it would have about the same effect. He's so hard, he's walking around with a knife <laughs> embedded in his back or, to show off. Or we make it so that the knife at this point is the only thing holding him up and all Riddick actually has to do is pull the knife out and he falls down dead. Yeah, I suppose, oh, that was a load-bearing knife. Or we don't even know that that was a knife. That could just have been his John Thomas. And Riddick grabs it and starts pulling and the guy's like, oh, oh. Okay. I have not had ha- happiness in Necromonger world for quite some time. Keep going. Oh, oh, it's a knife. It turns into a way better movie. It's, it's a knife handle that he glued to his back to make, to it make, look make like himself look, look doing really tough. Either way, Riddick's plan is not based on a foundation of this is a good it's idea. Not, it's what? based on an idea of, yeah, but it's going to look really cool. He is t- Riddick is what Lego Batman describes himself as yes! the whole time. Darkness. No, no parents. <laughs> and that was the culmination of all of this shit. It wasn't just Batman. That's why it was hilarious. It's because it was everything. Mm. 
Anyway, what I was going to say was, what's going on with Dame Varco? She is a necromonger. She has the anus on her neck. Yeah, Willow pointed out, why have they got buttholes on their neck? <laughs> she said, sorry, they said anuses, which I thought was very impressive. Anuses. And I said, it's to prove that they're all assholes. These are badge of honour. Yes, indeed. But uh, Dame Varco has one, which means she is a necromonger the same as everybody else. So why is she the only one who's allowed to retain her personality? Uh, moving on. There is a moment... Because they wanted to write a woman who was slightly more complex than a pair of tits. But that's the thing. There is a moment towards and a, the end... And a midriff with sweat on it. Where uh, a character that we haven't discussed much yet, who is mm -hmm. also female, mm -hmm. gets turned into a necromonger. Mm -hmm. She also seems to retain a measure of her personality. Which suggests the that it's like being a Nazi, and in fact you don't really want to be a Nazi, you're just playing along. Yeah, at which point, what are you doing? Is it the Borg? Is it not the Borg? And how does Linus Roach get to keep that that semblance of who he is that tries to, to reinvigorate itself at the end? What's going on with these guys? It's mysterious. That's better. In this case, when it's plot-related and people and everything hinges on are you a necromonger or are you not a necromonger, mm. uh, then this is actually something that does need to be answered. Yeah. It does need to be addressed, at least. But what it seems to come down to at the moment and with the information we have so far is that you've just allowed them to take over because it is politically or personally convenient for you at this moment until we need a squad of 100 people who will just do whatever they're told, mm. in which case they might as well just be clones or droids or whatever. Yeah. Okay, so um, <sighs> Riddick is hiding out at the beginning on the planet... Sighing a lot here. <laughs> on the planet UV. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's being hunted by Nick Chinland, who, who plays a character named Toombs. And Nick Chinland is a bounty hunter. He's a, he's a merc. And his ship of dangling dudes, it's very Mad Max, which I actually appreciate. Like, leaning more into the Mad Max and, frankly, leaning into absurdity and humour would have made this so much better. Yes. George Miller's Chronicles of Riddick would have been way awesome. Indeed. But this bit disappears fast. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're all looking for Riddick in the, in the snow because there's... Uh, <laughs> <sighs> they catch him and he's all shaggy and it's like we're gonna get on top of this guy and then the camera pans up and Riddick is on top of their ship and it's like oh Riddick is on top of everything that's him the whole movie he gets the jump on everyone he's really really cool he has these amazing instincts he is practically he can see the future in terms of where to be tactically and he always wins he always wins it's really important to note that Riddick always wins <sighs> it's just him in all of these. Yeah. It's kind of absurd to watch something like this. When you think back to, you know, the, like uh, the, the past bunch of years where it's been about, they're superheroes, yeah, but they're a hot mess and they all need support teams. Mm. And a lot of great uh, team dynamic uh, uh, films as well where people play off each other. And this is just the straightforward hero worship of the dark, brooding guy who's just best at everything. And even on the rare occasions when he does form bonds of a, a kind mm. and there is a suggestion that maybe having at least someone else beside him even if it's not an entire team mm. would be a good idea all that 
person does is help him kill more people, they don't do anything to support him emotionally, and then they die anyway. And they don't challenge him, is the important thing. Yeah. Uh, he, he keeps holding his hand, he keeps holding his shiv to people's throats. Like he, keep, he has like seven different knives throughout this film, and he's always holding them to people's throats. Which not just knifey boy, which I'm made not me, stab man. It made me realise that the times in Pitch Black where he holds a knife to someone's throat or a gun to someone's head, it's John's gun, that's when he's panicking. That's when he's like, oh shit! And he's, he's trying to not lose it at His that point. His defence mechanisms are kicking. He never holds a knife to someone's throat to show you how cool he is. Whereas in this, he holds knives to people's throat all the time to show you how cool he is. That You need look no further than that as a huge change in, in the way this character is approached. So what you're saying is this is two and a bit hours of watching Riddick have a panic attack. You could say that, but it would be way more interesting if that was actually the text. Yeah. But it's not. But it's not. It's not. It's, let's look at this cool guy do cool things. Now, uh, he gets hunted by these um, uh, mercs, captures Nick Chinland, holds a knife to his dick, and says, how much money are they asking for me? And uh, Nick Chinland says, a million. And then he puts it further towards his, his cock and balls. And he goes, oh, a million and a half. And it's like, why did you lie? What was the point? It's just to make it that Riddick goes from threatening to really threatening. And so then he goes, right, well, I guess I'll go to Helion Prime. And he leaves Nick Chinland behind. Chinlan's character of Tombs keeps getting left behind, going, I'll get you for this, Riddick! Which is honestly kind of the best thing about this film, because he's the ugly in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Mm. That's the end of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It's uh, Eli Wallach in that film is the secret weapon. He's so good. Indeed. Something's but Riddick is both the good and the bad. Mm. He's definitely not the ugly. He's constantly wearing the goggles. Mm. He's constantly either all okay. shaggy or... That's the difference between female gays and teenage boy gays. Yeah, good point. Yeah. There is no female gays in this. There oh. is none. They try and make you think there is. They have occasional women leaning on their elbows and going... Oh. Uh, Willow also pointed out that every woman who meets Riddick wants to bed him. And every man who meets Riddick wants to fight him. There is a scene... Oh. Her. There is a scene where what right one of the Merc team that works for Nick Chinless, um, he's got a chin. I saw it. Don't tell me it didn't happen. It's got a little scraggy pointy Sorry. beard. One of the Merc team who work for Nick Chinland uh, is a woman, and she and you can tell this because she's hypersexualized and drooling over Riddick. Yeah. So yeah, we've got the low cut top and the tight trousers and bloody bloody blah. blah, blah. As, she... as when Riddick meets her, he goes. Been a long time since I smelled beautiful. No, no, no. He's talking about uh, Dame Vanco, uh, Varco when he says that. Oh. It's still... It do you doesn't see, make it any better. But do you see how interchangeable the women are? Absolutely. If I couldn't even remember which woman he sleezed over like yeah. that. Um, but the <laughs> she, this, this woman sees Riddick, immediately starts drooling. And oh, handcuffs no, no, no. him, and they she get turns into a cartoon shit. wolf. She really does. She's, oh, gonna then, then there's this moment where, like, Riddick is supposed to be asleep in a coma. What? I'm not entirely sure what the circumstances hypersleep. are. Have they put him in hypersleep? Right. Okay, that explains it. Um, but then she crawls onto him, breast first, and she's like boobing boobily all over him. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm saying, I think, what exactly is, is she? Try, is she gonna kill him? What's what's she happening? She smells here? him as well. She smells him. And then, 
and and I'm I'm thinking, all right, okay, so maybe she is actually trying to come on to him at this point. Then he wakes up, and she seems surprised. So the structure of this scene is: this woman was going to molest this man in his sleep. What the actual fuck? Well, it's a back and forth. For the male gaze, we have, it's been a long time since I smelled beautiful. And for the female gaze, we have, hey ladies, ever tried to shove a marshmallow in a parking meter? Yikes. Yikes. Okay. So he goes to find out who's got the bounty on his head. It turns out to be Keith David, Imam. And Keith David's like, yeah, I'll be in this piece of shit movie, but you're going to have to kill me really fast. <laughs> And honestly, he dies for no reason because for the rest of the movie, whenever they're like, oh my God, the poor people might be hurt from Helium Prime, it cuts back to his wife and child, Zazu. Zizi. Zizi. Zizu. Like, like Riddick meets him, holds a knife to his throat and says, why, 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 why are you doing this? And it's like, you know, you're so much less threatening. Like, here's the thing. If you just stand over him, you remember how Bane just stands over... Um, Ben Mendelsohn in The Dark Knight Rises playing Roland Daggett. And uh, he's he's just sort of like bearing down on him. And he's, he's just like, you think this gives you power over me? And like he just drops a little finger onto Daggett's uh, collarbone and doesn't hold, doesn't like directly hold a knife to his throat, doesn't hurt him yet. He's about to hurt him a lot. Um, and Roland Daggett just pure evil and it, and it illustrates that just standing there is enough you don't have to hold a knife to someone's throat at all the time going i will cut your throat like we know riddick can kill people easily and if anyone knows that imam knows that because yes. he killed a fucking shark thingy quite easily absolutely and also the constantly holding knives and shivs and screwdrivers and teacups and things to people's <laughs> throats <sighs> Sooner or later, someone is going to say, look, if you were going to fucking do it, you'd have done it by now. Mm -hmm. But again, it's it's posturing for, for teenage boys. Absolutely. Uh, so the Necromongers very conveniently invade the planet at that exact point and march on Riddick's exact location. Indeed. Oh, that's what I was going to say. So that he can kill them in the dark. Helion Prime. Like, they right. look out the window and go, oh, a meteorite. And then they're there in six seconds. Absolutely. And this is a thing that is said. The surface of Helion Prime is impossible to live on because it's so hot. Oh, is that right? So yes. where are they? Are they on the surface? They're, I'm assuming that they're in some kind of underground thing. I don't know. But no, there's, right. there's, There is a place, because this is the place where Linus Roach walks out. No, in. that's crematoria. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh, Okay, fair okay. enough. I'll Back up there. a little bit. No, 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 that's fine. I was getting confused because I was assuming that Helion Prime meant the planet that is closest to the sun, since that's what Helion Prime means. My question was going to be, if there's a Helion Prime, one assumes that there is also a Helion Deuce and Trez and Quattro. <laughs> Why do they go and live on those? Because they're likely to be cooler. Logistics do not come into this. Of course they don't. Uh, crematoria is called that because it's really hot and fiery. And, and everything sets on fire. Yeah. You know what you've done there is... You've gone on fire. fire. Yeah, uh, and they, they hunt... The, the necromongers hunt down everyone on the planet with their lensing necros, which means that everyone who's hiding in a cupboard, they sort of walk around the place and the lensing necros are sort of like gimps with diver's masks on going, Yes, over there, in the cupboard! And so they're predators with heat vision. Though. Basically, yeah. Uh, and, and this seems like something that would take years with a population of billions. Mm-hmm. 
and even just a population of thousands. Like, the actual manpower, resources, and time it takes to get this shit done. But it evokes, rather uncomfortably, the, the digging Nazis. out of Jews from attics and basements and cupboards and blah, blah, blah. Yes, it does. So Keith David gets killed trying to defend his wife and child, and then Riddick defends his wife and child for him. So that sort of becomes his thing. And if the film had any soul to it, then the wife and child would then be along with Riddick for the ride at that point onwards, and he would start to bond with the wife and the child. And then that would be a story where Riddick realises that the thing missing from his life is connections to anyone. There will be no connecting. Uh, No, the uh, wife and the child uh, obligingly stay on Helium Prime, which is always under this sort of consistent threat for many years. by the Necromongers while Riddick goes off and does a side quest. Mm. He actually sneaks onto the Necromonger ship and they could have actually fucking ended it right there. He is standing in front of the Lord Marshal and could just have stabbed him in the face. Instead, he shows off his knife skills. Remember, this is that knife that he pulled out of the back of that dude. And he goes... And we're like, that's very good. I mean, it's computer assisted, but like, it's very cool what you're doing with that knife there, Riddick. And then uh, says... I think this knife is one milligram light on the back end. Like, I know knives a lot. So, like, your friend who really, really, really is into knives and has a massive collection that he uh, will show you and, like, you don't really have much of a choice, he loves this film. Hey, dude, shoes came in. Oh, awesome. You guys need to use a knife? No, dude. No, it's, yeah, it's fine. I, I got keys. Yeah. I mean, I got a knife if you want to use it. Don't. It's no big deal. Yes. Yeah, just got the knife here, so... It takes a second. Keys work just fine. You know, I'll just take care of it. don't Let's need a knife. Seconds. Dude, no, it's fine. We don't need a knife. Hey, man, Capri Sun. Thanks. I just whipped that all the road. Whoa, 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 no. I just basically will make it faster, Dude, so... Dude, no, I don't need a knife. Just gonna get in there real It's quick. a juice packet. Well, no, 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 no. There you go. Just save a couple times, so... Is that the last one? Yeah. Lord Marshall... It's all the spinal juice that's attached to it that's making it heavy. Yeah. Lord Marshall goes, hmm, interesting. You could make a fine specimen for our army. Send him to the quasi-deads. I'm like, the what? The quasi-deads. Now, the quasi-deads are kind of like oracles. If you remember the, the oracle in 300 being looked over by those gross old men. Yeah, they're exactly like oracles. Yeah. And also the uh, the the three um, in Minority Report, the ones who are kept kind of in a in a, in a fairly constant coma uh, to predict crimes. Yes. Riddick goes to see these guys, or is thrown to them, and they go, mm-hmm, "Yes, no, he he is the child who is foretold." And there's a whole thing about prophecy, and Riddick turns out to be the thing and the baby of the prophecy, the child of the prophecy. He's the special perfect. Boy, This was, of course, the first time I'd seen this since having seen Frank Herbert's Dune done properly by Denis Villeneuve. So it felt so tired watching this prophecy thing unfold. Mm-hmm. And so the Lord Marshal goes, ah, okay, so kill... The, 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 the orders are from the quasi-deads. Kill the Riddick. Kill the Riddick. And it's kind of like kill the Stark. It's his surname. His name's Richard B. Riddick. Like, you could call him Dick. And you'd be accurate. Kill the dick! Kill the dick! And a bunch of uh, necromongers jump in, and then he fights them, and then he gets away. And then a statue nearly falls on him, and it's like, almost immediately, there's a fight! (sighs) But nothing about this confrontation seems to really 
amount to anything. Like at this point, the Lord Marshal has realized that the the baby he tried to strangle in the womb with his own umbilical cords. Well, now he waits for them to be born and then tries to strangle them with their own umbilical cords. Right. Uh, okay. For some backstory, uh, the planet Furia. A prophecy was foretold. Uh, a pro- was foretold that a boy, a young man. All right, Riddick, from Furia would kill the Lord Marshal. And so, like King Herod and like uh, that pharaoh in uh, Prince of Egypt... Ramesses. Ramesses. Or Acrisius, uh, father of Danai, who was shagged by Zeus in the form of gold and gave birth to Perseus. And there was a prophecy that Acrisius of Argo would be killed by his own grandson. So he chucked them in a box, sent them out to sea, and then after a lot of stuff... Perseus accidentally kills him with a discus. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, although they may as well just have said, don't play frisbee with your grandson. Would have saved us all a lot of fuss and bother. Oh, it's a common mythological yeah. trope. Uh, the the, uh, the arsehole decides, I'm going to go around killing all these babies, thus giving loads of people a reason to try to kill me back. Absolutely. I'm going to make sure that this prophecy comes to pass. Three generations of gods in Greek mythology basically swallow all their own kids. Mm. Or do something with all their own kids yeah. to prevent one of them from killing them. And guess what? The one that gets away yeah. is the one that tries to kill them. So that's that actually relates back to what Riddick said in Pitch Black about, you know, to Imam, about you think I could be a baby born strangled by his own umbilical cord? They're like, work that into the mythology. That was just some shit that Riddick was spouting at the time uh, to show how he'd had it harder than everyone else. Because remember, Pitch Black began as a script that then had Riddick added to it. And they developed the character around that film. Much like Jack Sparrow, who ended up hijacking the entire Pirates franchise. But uh, as it turns out, it's part of this mythological drive to turn Riddick into something way bigger. And at the beginning, Dame Dench says... To combat this evil normally would require the good, but in desperate times we need another kind of evil. And I think we established last week that Riddick is true neutral, so that is another kind of evil, if you will. And being into D&D, he should be aware of this alignment chart. It's also worth noting, though the movie does not really note it, and some exploration of this I would have really appreciated, that there is an opportunity for the entire prophecy to be kicked in the arse. Because Linus Roach is also from Furia. And has been stood next to Colmfure the whole fucking time. For 30 years. He could have executed the prophecy at any given moment. And he chose not to. Instead, he just wanders out into the sun and goes on fire after encouraging Riddick to do what he could not. Yeah. So there is actually, potentially, a little side story going on there where he realises, I could have been the one to stop all of this Mm. and I didn't have the boldness to do so. And so he goes out and kills himself. Do we have a conversation around that? No. Nah. But you can infer it. You can infer it. And I've if you're got giving to the infer film... it. I've got to fucking do something to keep myself engaged. If you're giving the film the absolute benefit of the doubt. I love it when I spend two and a half hours watching a movie and have to make up my own shit to make it interesting. <sighs> so, and uh, getting away from the Necromongus, he gets picked up by Nick Chinland again. The uh, Merc, who's like, right, where should we take you to? And it is the most... Okay, we need to get you to this other planet so that the rest of the film can happen and then bring you back here because we can't just end here. Mm. We've got to have another side quest. So fuck did Imam get 1.5 million credits? He probably didn't. Well, yeah. Maybe he raised it for lo- by, with local charities. 
Or maybe just like send Riddick a message. Please come and uh, uh, you know and, and get me. But either way, Imam is now dead, and the and Helion Prime is under uh, attack, and Riddick gets shipped off to Crematoria. There's this ball bashing. Uh, section on the spaceship where he goes no please don't take me to the briar patch and nick chinlin goes yeah well i'm gonna take you to the briar patch and so he gets taken to this planet that is a prison that doesn't make any sense at all right we discussed this when we talked about the video games the prison system here is highly illogical it's weird like, what, what are they doing? It's like they're just collecting and they're comic book collectors trying to get the best killer boys to put down in a pit and mistreat. But they're not, they're not doing anything with them. There's no, there's no structure and order to the prison. It's a massive cave. It's just a pissing contest. the prisoners can quite easily randomly kill each other at any given moment. Yeah. So, which basically means, if you pay 1.5... I can't remember how much he gets in the end. Let's just say that Riddick is worth 1.5 million to this prison who get paid by the local governors or something? They do mention something about them getting paid per head. Yeah. And then... It, you only get paid for these people as long as they appear to be alive. Yeah. In which case, if this is all done by, like, heartbeat sensor or something, just chain them all to walls. Yeah. It's very inefficient as a way of getting money, and it requires the entire world to go, yeah, have some money. Yeah. Uh, Say you get Riddick in on a Sunday afternoon. You send him down the hole, and then it turns out he's way less tough than he keeps talking about, and he ends up on the end of someone else's shiv. And then Riddick dies. Are you still going to be paid 1.5 million, or are they going to go, well, no proof of purchase? That's not even a situation. Like, we can pay you 70 bucks for the cadaver. Or Riddick kills the person you just paid a million for yesterday. Absolutely. What is the point of this fucking place? Like, it, 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 no, it, it in no way manages to illustrate the actual real insidious problem with the prison system, which is that America in particular seems to want to get light offenders, drug offenders, dark-skinned drug offenders into these forced labor camps and work them to death and get the taxpayers to pay for their upkeep. It's a fucking grift. It has been for a long time. While research and successful drug policy shows that treatment should be increased. And law enforcement decreased while abolishing mandatory minimum sentences. That's not how this is handled. It's almost handled in the same kind of throwaway way as has been discussed on our uh, our Discord recently. The Captain Planet villains, they just want to pollute because it's fun as opposed to because it's incredibly profitable. Hmm. Like, I don't know what money you get from putting Riddick in prison, and I don't understand why a place this savage doesn't have the death penalty. No one ever says death penalty, yeah. ever. Yeah. If, if they are horrendous criminals that you really want rid of, they just kill them. If he's a psychopathic killer, as he's being billed as, just give him the chair. This is not me advocating for the death penalty, far from it. This is me saying, this is a story world where they'd have it. Except they can't start talking about that, because this movie about a mass murderer is a family action film. And they don't want us thinking. Utilizing drugs to pay for secret wars around the world. Drugs are now your global policy, now you police the globe. Like, I, I'm not being presented with a society that is gentler than our current society. Everyone's a mercenary. Mm. It's mental. Indeed. 
So anyway, in this new prison, he meets... Phase three is profit. <sighs> in this new prison, he meets Kyra. Now, who is Kyra, Sharon? I've just uh... got... So you didn't like it then? All I've got here is Jack, good Lord Sharon, just go for it. <laughs> okay. So. This is the worst. This is the worst. Everything else surrounding it is, it just fades into the background compared with how much the worst this particular decision is. Okay, go for it. So, Pitch Black, mm -hmm. the character of Jack, who is a 12-year-old Stowaway, question mark, somebody who is travelling on the ship, sans Not parents. really a so stowaway, just someone who is hitching a ride. Yeah, indeed. Pretty much. <coughs> Otherwise known as a stowaway, but yeah. Oh, no, no, no. no they, hitching a ride is, yeah, can you take me to the next stop, okay. trucker? Yeah. And you just hope that the trucker's not going to, Rather than in Jack's in words, mess with you. Yeah. It's so actually like, Jack, it's a serious scenario. Absolutely. So Jack is a, a young girl who is travelling alone, and in order to try and minimise the amount of shit she gets from the people around her, disguises herself as a boy. Which, by the way, considering that the first time she meets a bunch of mercenaries in this, now all grows up would appear to be a good instinct because she is immediately in her words messed with she says they slave her out yeah i don't even want to go there and you shouldn't have either Tui. anyway so jack has been it escapes from the planet with riddick and imam at the end of pitch black and question mark we don't know what happens there after. dark fury happens they go elsewhere yeah here we discover that apparently Riddick left her on Numeca. Yeah, say Numeca. He, he says Isn't, you no, Numeca is Numeca. in Helium Prime. Right. Okay. That's the name of the city that gets attacked. I gotcha. Okay, so he says she should have stayed in Numeca. So one assumes that's where he left her. However, then things went from bad to worse. It would appear that she got picked up by a group who did sell her into slavery. Awful things happened between then and now. And somewhere along the line, she turned into the scantily clad, flame-tressed, sweaty-boobed Alexa Davos. And is now calling herself Kira because our audience can't imagine themselves banging somebody who calls themselves Jack. <sighs> Any attempt at... Concealing self as masculine in order to hide from the horrible society that one has been dumped in has gone sideways in favour of dressing in the most sexy way possible in the middle of a prison full of men who do dreadful things to her on the regular. Why is she the only girl in this prison? Why is she still clad this way in this environment that is not victim shaming by any means, that is clothes designer shaming? What the fuck? <clears throat> no problems with the fact that they cast Alexa Davos. She actually does really well with the shit she's given. But she appears to be doing the uh, thing where you lure men in by looking really sexy and then kill them with the spiky spurs on your boots and your amazing acrobatic powers. Which is fine out in the world here. Really? That is then all you're doing dawn to fucking dawn because it's not going to go away while you sleep. <laughs> I just, I fucking just. I, th they could have done anything different with this. Keep her call, like... 
Keep her calling herself Jack. Why the fuck did you need to change her name to something that's particularly adorable? Why the fuck did you have to give her this... Uh, this? Um, it's the Gelfling from the Dark Crystal. It just... I I, just the difficulty that I have with putting this into words. She's modelled herself after Riddick. Uh, She took everything he said to heart, including the whole, you trade 20 menthol cools for a surgical shine job. She tried to follow in his footsteps, killed a bunch of people, got sent to prison, found 20 menthol cools, went to a guy and said, could you give me a surgical shine job? And he was like, I don't know what that is. Mm. And she was like... it turns out that Furians just have eyes like this. Yeah, more than that that in a bit. Uh, And uh, she's angry at Riddick because he lied to her and she's spent her entire life trying to be as cool as him and she is as cool as him and she's angry about that. There is one moment with her character that I liked. And when I say she is as cool as him, I mean she's designed in the same way as Riddick is. She's like a total badass who can leap all over the place. She says cool things. She's always right and like in the right place tactically. She's his fucking familiar. She's very animalistic. There comes a point where he, she like they join forces, but this is what I meant when I said when you have apparently a small team around you, but literally all they do is help you kill. Yeah. They don't reflect anything back to you. There's no character development as a result. The They're so on thing. the edge of almost actually doing something that might be about Riddick's flapping mouth. But they don't. Indeed. There is one moment with her character that I actually liked, and it is after... I'm trying to think exactly when it is, but it's when they're on the cliffs, Mm -hmm. and she's uh, down at the bottom on her own. She's just... I think she's just watched them grab Riddick and drag him into the ship or some something's happened that separated them mm-hmm. and she's hiding and there's a moment when she does that get up Trinity get up get up and, and gets up and moves she is not channeling Riddick at that point she is channeling Fry mm. and I that I liked that I thought was good they could have kept her called Jack they could have said Alexa choose your own clothes you tell us how you think she'd dress in this circumstance and it would have changed that character no fucking it oh kept Rihanna Griffith the original actor for Jack absolutely she's voicing Jack in Dark Fury which came out four days after this film which Mm. suggests that she's still capable of acting yes But this is a direct decision to make it sexier. Yeah. Jack seems to be there to make Riddick sad and to sort of poke at Riddick. Mm. Yeah. And to fancy Riddick. She also falls into the camp of uh, women who want to bang him. Mm. There's a moment when he's showering, but he doesn't even do the whole... They could have taken his clothes off and made him do the whole slow-mo thing. They don't do that. He just stands under some water. in his vest, under some water. Getting real wet. Cleaning his teeth. I don't know what he's doing. Not for the last time in this. There, like leaning over the railing, going, ah, No! Turns into a cartoon wolf again. Uh, uh, later on, they outrun the sun. And. <laughs> <laughs> They are, because the sun is so intense on crematoria that you'd almost wonder why they'd even set up a prison planet on it. But uh, uh, it's... Why is the whole planet not burst into flames by this point? Well, why is the humidity on the planet not insane? Because you wouldn't be able to breathe. Like They're like, oh God, I don't want to stand in direct sunlight. I would burst into flames. But breathing's okay right now because the air is practically combusting. Has anyone seen Mercury? Yeah. You ever been to Arizona? It's hot. <laughs> There's a reason it's called Death Valley. Anyway... Whether it's physics or not, um, he uh, has to swing around a mountain in this direct sunlight after splashing himself with water just to save Jack's life. And then when he finishes, he's steaming because all the water's just evaporating off him. And it's the Titanic breath CG, because the CG in this is all rubbish. 
it doesn't look right because it's flowing in like four different directions at once. And it's like, you could just have had Vin Diesel actually steaming. There are ways to do that, naturally. Spray him with hot water. Yeah. Not too hot, obviously. We don't want to hurt the poor baby. Yeah. But um, there's one good gag in this entire film, as far as I can tell. And that is, when they're in the prison, and it's very much a, a pissing contest, some horrible guys try to molest Jack, uh, Kira, which from the sounds of it is quite a regular thing, and Vin... <laughs> And Riddick comes to her rescue and says something along the lines of, you better stop doing that. And they're like, oh, what? You're going to kill me with your, with your soup cup? And he goes, it's tea, actually. I'll kill you with my teacup. A metal cup that he lays on a rock beside him, illustratively. And the guy's like, yeah, pfft, uh, and then runs at Riddick like um, a man running at John Wick. Um, Riddick... Kills him with the teacup, like, smashes it on a rock so it's all jagged, jams it into his heart, twists it, PG-13, remember, folks. The guy just drops like a stone. And that's not the funny bit. Then the guy's mates look at him in a kind of a, huh, I'm not sure about this, and Riddick goes, okay. Bends down, picks up the key from a sardine can, and then lays it on the rock beside him in a kind of a, I will kill you with the key from a sardine can. And won't it be fun finding out how I'll do that? <laughs> And they go, ah, fuck this, and walk off. Like, that's, that's a good gag, well delivered. It's the only funny bit in an otherwise very self-serious film. Okay, so after all of this fucking around in crematoria, Nick Chinland ends up tied into a cage between two angry dogs that were very happy to meet Riddick because uh, he's, he's the special boy. And he's oh, like... is that the blood cats? The blood cats. And he's like, Riddick! Terrible CGI. And then the Necromongers grab Jack and fly off, and Varko's like, yep, I uh, killed Riddick, and I'll go and tell the Lord Marshal he's definitely dead. Um, because he must be by now. But as we said, the Purifier, played by Linus Roach, who was Bruce's father in Batman Begins, stays behind, takes off all of his goth jewellery. He's like wearing little finger armour things. It's kind of cute. And he sort of lays them down, and he takes off his like weird, scaly, uh, Giga-esque headpiece. His outfit, by the way, is even more ridiculous than Confuro's. It is. It's just, it's shaped so badly. It just, it makes it look like his head is half an inch taller than it should be. It is. They're, they're a bit cenobite -y. Yeah. Uh, and and then he's got uh, this shock of bleach blondy hair. And I was like, are they trying to make him like Roy Batty from Blade Runner? And then he mutters at Riddick something along the lines of, I've seen things you wouldn't believe. And I went, oh, yes, is the answer then. Yeah. Uh, and he admits to Riddick, I was a Furian as well. And we are of a race that have now been eradicated. You're the last of us. You must avenge our race. Now I can actually tell you a little bit about the research that I've done into this. Go Not it. much research. It sounds like this was in comic books or something released at the... You know how it's like you'd understand uh, Batman v Superman uh, Dawn of Justice better if you read all the BuzzFeed articles about how that's actually Jimmy Olsen. That doesn't make me understand it more. It's just extra crappy lore which raises further questions. Okay. Furia was a planet that 30 years ago got ravaged by the Necromongers. But here's the thing, from what we've seen of the Necromongers, that's what they do to every world. So Riddick would effectively be avenging every world and stopping the Necromongers. The important thing here being stopping and destroying the Necromongers. Straight up deciding, I am going to hunt you all down and kill you to prevent you doing this to any other planets. 
but he's going to avenge Furia. And he gets visions of this one Furian woman coming towards him. And, and she actually narrates part of the uh, Butcher Bay video game. And she's there when Riddick gets his shiny eyes. It wasn't a surgical shine job. It was something to do with Furia. Uh, he is the baby of the prophecy, one who would destroy you. That Elora Denon type. This is going to take a long time, so you may want to get some snacks. No, no, that's all right. I think I can wait for it. Well, I'm going to get food. Thousands of years ago. As it turns out, if you read into the comics, Furians are human beings who left Earth thousands of years ago and went to a very inhospitable planet called Furia. There they evolved to be very animalistic. They look like humans, but they're very animalistic, which gives them heightened senses. They're always, they always look really sexy and awesome. They have great hair or no hair. They have gravelly voices and they always speak in a very theatrical way. Yeah, they, they were super adept at, at, at kind of being survivors. There's one point where this, this, the female sage, I can't even know if she's got a name. Just call her the Oracle. The Oracle says to him, you must avenge Furia and look at the graves of Furia. And, and it sort of shows a big plain covered in unmarked gravestones. Did they get another race from another planet <laughs> to dig graves for billions of people on this planet that has been completely destroyed and, and, and stripped of people? And make gravestones for them? And obviously, it's symbolic. But the way this film goes, symbolism doesn't mean anything. Everything's literal. The thing that we don't know, and don't, I didn't even know until I found out today, Riddick isn't just a Furian. He's an Alpha Furian. What? Yep. And there was much defecation. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned that. How long ago did you say this was? Thousands of years ago. No, shut up. And I was like, Sharon's gonna hate this so much. Alpha Furians are like super powerful, awesome Furians with even better enhanced sight and senses and smell and reflexes. And they have shiny eyes so they can see in the dark. And all animals think that they're awesome. And Riddick is an alpha. And they, they evolved so that they could lead the Furians like the alphas in the wolf pack. You know, in that scientific study by Rudolf Schenkel in 1947, debunked by David Meck, the world's most prolific wolf researcher in 1999. But if you're into that whole alpha wolf, beta male, sigma, gamma, zeta, epsilon subculture of men standing beside sports cars who claim to have access to the platinum club of females, then Riddick is your guy. The abilities of these alphas far surpass those of their kin, granting them new superhuman strength, speed, agility, reflexes, endurance, senses, and durability. They even had the ability to endure without oxygen for extended periods of time, which is how Riddick managed to survive being strangled by his own umbilical cord as an infant. This is also backed up by Varko, who told Riddick that when the Necromunga Empire invaded Furia, he had seen a male Furian who had the same eyes as Riddick that was able to take out several soldiers with ease, reinforcing the notion that this was a Furian trait only given to alpha males. I'd be doing a major disservice to the lore if I didn't include Shira, who was a female Furian and possibly the only other survivor of the Necromunga genocide who came to Riddick in visions. Appearing in both the director's cut of the Chronicles of Riddick and the game Escape from Butcher Bay, which is set before the events of Pitch Black, Shira played a vital role in reminding Riddick who he was, guiding him on a righteous quest for revenge. You must settle your past. Look at our world, at the graves of those who didn't escape 30 years ago. There is no future until we settle our past. 
all of us who bear the mark. In the game, Riddick is having his arm stitched up by Pope Joe when Shira's voice spoke to him and her workers in Alpha Fury for the first time. This essentially granted him the eyeshine along with the Wrath of the Furians, which was the embodiment of rage felt by the entire Furian race. A couple of extra lines which we haven't uh, uh, covered. I wanted to make sure that I quoted them. Um, Nick Chinlan, before he gets left in a cage, mutters to Riddick smugly, <clears throat> Dust my dick when you get the chance. I'm not even sure what that means, but okay, will do. He also refers to uh, the people of Crematoria as... Was it, is, is it them or, or is it Butcher Bay? He says that they're waffle-eating pussies. Like, that's not a tough enough j jail for you. I've got to send you to the toughest jail. And Riddick's all sort of talking hard and going, yeah, they keep a cell open for me whenever I come by. And it's like, yeah, I've had it harder than you. I'm even harder. And... The last line that I've, I wanted to make sure is that when Riddick finally fights the Lord Marshal and fulfills this prophecy by killing King Herod, the Lord Marshal, uh, he lands a, a hit and the Lord Marshal checks his arm or something and goes, it's been a long time since I've seen my own blood. And the entire audience falls asleep and starts snoring because Confure is the most boring actor I have ever seen. You said at the time, you know what I'm thinking. Yeah, you? you made me you bleed my, my own blood. blood. Yes. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's that level of... it's Imagine really juvenile stuff delivered by people who are being way too self-serious and actually are, like, physically grown up. It's a weird thing to look at. So, yeah, I, I checked the uh, time at this uh, stage, and I was like, wow, this is still half an hour from the end. And all I remember is a really quick, shabby, clumsy fight. And that's effectively all it is. Ultimately, Varko, after being urged by his wife to try to take over, tries a sort of a, a, a pathetic power bid while Riddick is fighting the Lord Marshal after having snuck in dressed as a necromonger. Which is really the best kind of monger, since the only others you've got are iron, war, and fish. Varko fucks up and fails and Riddick wins because he's the best knifey boy. But in doing so, it's not just Riddick's skills. Kira is taken by the necromongers and borged turned into a necromonger and she's like it hurts at first but then afterwards you become really boring and I am now really boring and I like this fashion sense and that's all I've got going for me and as a result of the way that the fight works she like stabs the Lord Marshal from behind to prevent Riddick being killed and then he flings her against a spiky pillar which kills her yes so Jack dies and Riddick very specifically said that he went to uh, the planet UV, to keep everyone away from her. He altruistically, like, sacrificed his future to be on the run so that he wasn't in any way connected with Jack. I'm not sure what... It's like saying, I didn't want you to get drawn into my various crimes, so I left you in Casablanca, and I went to Alaska. And I had to stay in Alaska. It's literally the only place that isn't Casablanca. And I'm like, that makes the galaxy seem really small. Mm, it does. Also, it makes Riddick seem really stupid. Yep. Because he genuinely thinks that Jack is in less danger in the rest of this hideously shitty universe that he knows perfectly well exists. Mm. She's No, she's better on her own in all of that mess than she is stood next to me. Well, to, to him, I'm just trouble. Mm. Now... But actually, it's about, I don't want to have to look after her. Yeah. Now, 
I have gone on and on about how this movie misses the mark over and over again, and it still misses the mark with its ending. But the ending is actually a little bit better than it could have been, mm. because Jack dies in Riddick's arms, leaving him with nothing. And then he, in just total desolation, slumps back onto the iron throne of the Necromungers, and then the camera pans back and out, and all the Necromungers start bowing down because their Lord Chungus is now dead, and Riddick's now their king. And he has avenged Furia, at least upon the guy who uh, strangled a whole bunch of babies with umbilical cords, but he's now king of this army, which leaves you with a sort of a oh god ending. And an oh god ending is way better than like Riddick and Jack going, let's go on to the next place. Doopy doopy doop boop. Mm. Because did. ultimately, like, the, what needs to actually happen is he needs to go, right, we're now going to hunt down all the necromongers and kill them. We are going to be the supreme necromongers. But then secretly, his intention is to then destroy these guys as well to effectively rid the galaxy of this plague. Yeah. Indeed. And they and could have made that the next movie, but Budget didn't cover that. <laughs> Apparently not. And also, the Necromonger angle was not well-liked by the public. Absolutely. They completely missed a trick, by the way, with Jack's death. Yeah. Because when she stabs the guy and gets thrown and then gets killed, mm. have Riddick say, not for me. Not for me. Honestly, I'm glad they didn't do that, because yeah. that's mm -hmm. taking a gain from Pitch Black. The less this is the to do with Pitch takes, Black, the, the more better. we can just go, do you know what? It's just an entirely different story. Yeah. There was no Jack. This is Kira. There was no Rig uh, Riddick. This is Richard B. Rickle. Criddick, his Critic. twin brother. <laughs> yeah. You actually got really crabby when Graham Ravel's theme from Pitch Black started playing. You I went, did. oh, you don't get to use that. Yeah, but he does because it's his. It just annoyed the shit out of me. Hmm. So in conclusion, this is actually worse than you might remember. It's a prelude to a lot of rubbish that came after, and it stands as a cross-section of everything awful about 2000's blockbusters. A vehicle for a superstar whom the camera worships without question. Minimal characterization, even for the hero, objectifying women to uncomfortable lengths, self-serious and packed with silly shit that it insists is grown up, heartless and grimdark without being hard-hitting, yet somehow toothless and tween-boy focused. Everything looks and acts like they're in a video game from that era. Fights are conducted in glitchy slow-mo staccato, with edits so fast you'll have no real idea who is where, just that Riddick is tough. And also, they have people leap through the air and spin through the air a lot. There's a lot of wire work. I actually appreciated that a bit more. Like there's, there's there's some arresting shots of Riddick leaping through the air. He doesn't ever look like he's not on a wire, but it's a different form of combat. It's just edited horribly. The colour palette is restricted, as I said, to slate grey and sweaty flesh. The law speaks of many planets, but the world doesn't feel populated at all. It's 2004, so all of the digital effects look shabby, yet somehow too many of the practical effects are clunky, inefficient and ugly. There's little to no elegance anywhere. It is mindlessly violent without being exciting. It is way too long with nothing actually happening. Vulgar without being shocking, dingy, stupid, needlessly confusing, repetitive, and the worst crime, boring. Everything this stands for eviscerates the finer qualities of Pitch Black in favour of retooling a piece of effective cinema into a profiteering franchise. Unfortunately, the ambition far outstrips the proficiency, and all they ended up with was a monument to greed and the empty storytelling that comes with desperation for attention. Thank you. 
School of Movies is not scared of necromongers, we have our patrons to back us up. A small but powerful force of elite listeners who love to hear us delve into the underverse of movies, good and bad. And a different kind of bad. And our top tier $15 sponsors who always keep what they kiss include Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dachler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, John Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skeels Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Now, I had planned that we were going to be talking about Black Panther Wakanda Forever next week, but there is so much to go into. I think we're better wait on this one. I know it sounds disappointing to hear that, but it will be a better show if us and our guests can really study this thing. As more comes to light about how it was made and what the intentions were, it's not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. If you're hungry for more Marvel, then coming up on our Patreon as we get closer to Christmas, we have the final shows in our MCU Infinity Saga revisit. So that's Infinity War, Endgame and Spider-Man Far From Home. And those are on the Patreon bonus feed where you can also find, this week, a show on The Chronicles of Riddick Dark Fury, The Chronicles of Riddick Escape from Butcher Bay, and The Chronicles of Riddick Assault on Dark Athena. So if you're keeping count, that is The Chronicles of Riddick Parts 1, 2, and 4, with Pitch Black being 3. And what we have next week on the main feed is our show on Part 6 of The Chronicles of Riddick, simply entitled Riddick that will close out this dark season. And we will follow that with a walk out into the sunshine as we talk about Superman, the animated series. So until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. out.